0: Um, But uh, I felt like this is somewhere that we needed to go I'm going to get the live stream going here Um, And I felt like this is something that was um, Was necessary for us to approach Thank you, Amber Um, Because he's really reframing how we look at things He's reframing how we look at scripture He's reframing how we how we approach things, Um, and um, I would really like to, to, to in many ways, while this is not just a focus about how we look at Scripture, this is a focus about how God speaks to us, Uh, it it primarily, as those that, uh, whether you admit it or not, whether we use the term or not, we are biblicists by background, meaning we are people that have been taught, understanding the bible is the ultimate authority and that we are literalists um and that the um the bible is inerrant uh we we were i I was taught and raised with inerrancy um and one what you have to understand is when you're when that is the primary lens wherewith you view things um, it it in many ways doesn't give us some of the grace to be able to allow the Lord to speak in the full scope of how he wants to speak to us. So this morning, we're going to look primarily at how we view Scripture. I've grown up with a deep and robust appreciation for Scripture. From an early age, I began memorizing Scriptures and using memory methods to retain this knowledge. Taught as little kids, you know, you would memorize scriptures and you would quote scriptures, and um, you would. We did Bible quiz. Um, some of you uh, remember Bible quiz. Um, Bill and Martha Joe aren't here this morning, but Martha Joe was the official, official um, coin tosser of the Assembly of God Bible Quiz Association, um, and um, and so we would travel to various churches, and and uh, and then we would do what we called sword drills. I don't know if anybody remembers sword drills. Sword drills is you would see how quickly you could turn to a passage, or how quickly you could quote a passage. Um, we would do these sword drills where we would get everybody together. The leader would say Malachi three twenty, and everybody would try to turn there as quickly as you could and read it aloud. You know, um, and so that's the environment I grew up in. This has proven to be incredibly helpful to me throughout my life. I want to I want to make sure that I'm uh, reinforcing the fact that the 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 background and love that I have for the scripture has. been incredibly helpful to me. In fact, as I have shared prior, I enjoy spending hours examining scripture, unpacking the words in Greek and Hebrew in an attempt to gain knowledge about what is meant. This has and continues to be one of my favorite pursuits. And through the last few years, um, I have found my approach to study evolving in a very unintentional way. I begin to notice that the more I read and studied, I realized that my interpretation of scripture, if I'm not careful, becomes a constant search for the reinforcement of my current stance. can happen from a pure and genuine stance of desire to know God. The challenge becomes that with this singular approach, we have told people what to see rather than how to see. I'm going to say that again. The problem is if we're not careful, we teach people what to see rather than how to see. And as soon as you inform people about what to see, they just look for that in whatever it is they're viewing. So they begin to look for that in their experiences. They begin to look for that in Scripture. So it became very, uh, I say, unintentional. It wasn't like overnight all of a sudden I thought, oh. But I began to realize that I was looking for the same things in the Bible. Regardless of what I was studying, I was looking for the same things. And so if you look for something, you will find it. If you look for something find it and and that's just the case with how we're wired Um, that's how people that are positive people can find good inside of difficulty that's how people that are negative people can find bad inside of wonderful blessing that's just how we are wired and it's no different from how uh, in how we approach the scripture we begin to then look for what we already see rather than what we need to see We begin to look at the scripture in a way that actually just reinforces what we already see rather than be a lens where we have the ability to see deeper. This becomes a brick by brick building of a tower to God based on what we already know. This literally this method where we are are are. Because, um, you know, the three boxes um, that we have to have in life, Here's, here's just, this is a side note, this is not on my notes, in the journey of life there are three boxes that everyone is intended to go through, construction, deconstruction, and reconstruction. Construction is where you establish boundaries, where you establish identity. Deconstruction is where you push back against what you've been told your identity is. Reconstruction is where you reestablish the identity as it actually is based on what you've learned. Most conservative Christians stay in construction. Most conservative Christians stay in the first box. Because they feel their life defined by the boundaries of the box. They feel reassured or secure by that, those boundaries. Deconstruction threatens those. But unfortunately, uh, the, the second problem that we have is liberalism, and I'm not talking about from a political sense, although that can be the case as well. But liberalism stay in deconstruction, and they're always just fighting against the system. That's not his intention either. His intention with deconstruction is to lead us to reconstruction. It's easy to deconstruct and determine what you don't believe. It's much harder to determine what you actually do believe. Anybody can say what they don't want to do. That's why oftentimes when new churches are started, most, I'm not picking on people, but oftentimes when new churches are started, they're started upon an agreement of what they don't want to be, not what they do want to be ask them what is this church based on well i can tell you what we're not going to be we're not going to be like those people over there well that's great and sometimes you have to start there but it's easy to say what you're not it's harder to allow the understanding of what you're not to lead you into what you are that's freedom and in fact i would i would argue that's probably better defined as liberty but when you look at The way we've been taught to view Scripture, in many ways, all it becomes is a brick-by-brick tower that we feel gets us closer to God. So we look at the Scripture, and we only see the themes that are already within our perspective and view. And then we take those, and that becomes a brick-by-brick building of a tower that gets us to God. And we see this as early as Genesis 11, this method being used. Genesis 11, verse uh, 1 through 9, really, is the story of the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel is an attempt by people to get closer to God through the means of them building something. Now, here's the real kicker that I think maybe we've missed within the Tower of Babel story is notice that people were building something to try to get closer to God. Literally, hey, can we build a tower that gets us into heaven? That's what they said. Now, I don't think that they meant like the eternal life kind of heaven that we think about, but I think that they, they literally meant we want to be able to see what God sees. So they begin to build this thing in their own strength. Notice the response of God, because in my opinion, the response of God is the thing that he intended all along. God looks down and says, let us go to them.
1: That's been God's intention all along.
0: Notice what God says. Let them let us go to them. Come, let us go down. And I understand what it says about confusing the language, and I understand all of that. I'm not not debating any of those things. But what I'm simply saying is if you look at the Scripture starting in Genesis 1, God's intention has always been to come down, not for us to go up. been a destructive device within most of how we're taught. We're taught that we ascend unto God. And really, I understand that there's some metaphor there. but, uh, But from the basis of even Genesis 1, what does the Spirit do? He comes and broods across the waters. Then you have Adam and Eve where God comes in the cool of the garden and meets with them. Then you have the Tower of Babel where there's this measure of They're trying to build this thing to get to God. And that's the way we have viewed our study of Scripture. That's the way we viewed our spiritual journey. Our spiritual journey has been the exact opposite of Jesus. I know this is going to be hard, but it's just the reality. Our spiritual journey has been the exact opposite of Jesus. Our spiritual journey, we feel like the more we're filled up, the closer to God and holier we are. Jesus' spiritual journey was never a filling up but a pouring out. And so, the, we, but we fight against pouring out. We fight against falling. We fight against um, um, the, 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 the difficult, deep work. And, and the journey of Jesus has never been us accomplishing something and then climbing another rung on the ladder of God's acceptance ladder. You know, we go higher. Oh, it's like, you know, we we got to hit the next button on the elevator that goes up. It's not that way. It's just not that way. And what you actually find is he's always trying to get to us. He's always trying to get to us. And if we look that he's always trying to get to us, then we don't feel like there's a requirement for us to do something to absolve our weakness enough for us to be able to get to him. He's not standing in a distance with his arms crossed, waiting on you to get that thing out of the way so that you can get to him. He's just simply saying, fall so I can come to you. It's just that simple. Be literally the, I'm firmly starting to believe the only two things that this journey of life requires is humility and yieldedness. If you can master that, If you can master the ability to be humble and to surrender, I really do feel like those are the primary bedrocks, foundational points for having a deep commune in the journey with God and coming to a fullness of life that he intends. But we've been taught those things are so far away from the, 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 the central core of our Christendom. Holiness is at the center. In fact, I taught that if God and I were, if I wasn't feeling him or finding him, that the first thing that I needed to do was get on my face and repent because there was some deep-seated sin in my heart as a six-year-old child. He just wants your heart. He wants your yieldedness. He wants your commune. And, And scripturally, we find that. We just find that over and over and over and over again. So what you see as you look at this story from the Tower of Babel, it's the same thing that we try to do with Scripture. We take this and we say, I believe this. And then we say, I believe this. And we say, I believe this. And we say, I believe this. And and the Bible says this. And the Bible says this. And we feel like that each of those little things become the perspective that gets us higher and higher or closer and closer to God. The entire time he's saying, you don't need to try to climb to me because I'm coming to you. It was not sinful behavior, but the self-deification impulse of the ego that led humans to build the Tower of Babel. It was the self-deification of ego. Deification means you become the center. You occupy the throne where God should be that's what our ego does as soon as we fight surrender we've taken the throne there's only one throne in our life it belongs to him but the only way he can have that throne is if that we if we do not occupy it with our ego as soon as we refuse the path of surrender we refuse the, the place for him to have the throne, and we assume the throne of the ego of who we are. It's just that simple. And so what you see in the Tower of Babel example is that measure where the, the ego of what they could do, what they could accomplish, how they could build something that would get them to God. Does this not sound like how we've been taught in church? You do it. We've it subscribe to it, you fulfill it. It's all based on our our group's interpretation of what the Bible says anyway. Because I guarantee you the the, the Methodist list, they say is absolutely biblical. The Pentecostal list, they say is absolutely biblical. The Catholic list, they say is absolutely biblical, and none of them are the same. So then we feel like that if we adhere to those lists, then God, we get closer to him. That we're... Anytime time doctrine or theology starts with a bad question, you get a bad result. The bad question is, how can I get back to God? The right qu- or the, it starts with the framework of a separation that never existed in the first place. So a bad question leads to a bad theology. You don't have to get back to God because you don't have to build a tower of Babel based on your list or fulfillments or ideas or objectives. God's always been getting to you. The
1: real question is, how can I let him in? That's just it.
0: Thus, the Tower of Babel is the example and leads everyone to building on our own, using all the means that we can accomplish and become available. Thus, religion becomes a very effective smokescreen behind which the ego reigns supreme. Our our doctrine, our belief system, our perspective becomes a very powerful smokestream by which the ego reigns supreme. However, we must understand that this is not how the early church fathers read the Bible. The approach I have instructed many of you to take when looking at the scriptures is to let the scriptures interpret themselves. How many times have you heard me say that? Well, I'm here to tell you that that's an incomplete picture. Better way to say it, I was wrong. I was just wrong. I, I'm not saying I was wrong because you shouldn't do that. I'm saying I was wrong because that was incomplete. When we start with the idea of letting the scriptures look at the, uh, interpret themselves, meaning look at the word or the theme and then find that word throughout to gain an understanding of the intent, it's a very valuable approach. But I believe it to be insufficient in and of itself. We'll talk more about this later, but one of the first things that I found to be fascinating about um, about the, 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 the idea of how they look at scripture in the early father's tradition in the apostles, the disciples of Jesus, the first guys, the guys that framed the church is that they that's not how they studied scripture. scripture is how we're going to interpret what we believe, we end up being unconsciously dishonest and inconsistent because we're relying on our own tradition of interpreting those scriptures without even acknowledging it. we're only going to let scripture interpret scripture because that's the most honest way to interpret that scripture. We're ignoring the fact that we're interpreting that scripture with the lens we already have. The way I read the day of Pentecost is based on the fact that I already believe in charismatic gifts. The way that a non-charismatic person reads the day of Pentecost is no less scriptural albeit it's through the lens of not believing in charismatic gifts. So only having that becomes ineffective. Even more importantly, we must recognize that we cannot rely upon our own experience. There's no such thing as a completely unbiased opinion. Sorry to say. And most of our opinion is based on our our experience, what we were told. Why do we read only the King James Bible? Because my mom read only the King James, not literally. My grandma read only the King James Bible. My great-grandma, my great-grandpa, so on and so forth. So why do we do that? Well, I don't know. That's just what we always did. And those things just are there. There is no such thing as a completely unbiased opinion. Since we all use tradition and experience anyway, why not admit it and thereby hold ourselves accountable? See, for years I was taught that the Protestants were the Bible people and the Catholics were the tradition people. You could drill down further and say that if Protestants were the Bible people, we Western evangelical Pentecostals were absolutists and card-carrying literalists. So we weren't, as Protestants, we weren't just Bible people. As, As those that we are in the Western world, we were absolutists. Not only did we only believe the Bible, but we had it figured out. We knew what it meant. And if we had any answer to life, we got out our encyclopedia that is what? The Bible. We start flipping for the passage. And so within that, the problem is, depending on what passage you land on, it could tell you that it's okay to stone somebody who's in adultery. You see the problem here. And so we begin to do things like that based on this Dualistic approach that said that we were this and the Catholics were this. And that's why we had very little I shouldn't say we. I had very little value for our Catholic brothers and sisters, our more Eastern or Orthodox brothers and sisters, because I was taught that I couldn't I couldn't trust those guys because the Bible was the least of the books that they valued. They only had cared about what the early church fathers said. They didn't care about what the Bible said. The problem is Within my understanding, I didn't realize that I was also ignoring the first thousand years of the church. I was ignoring the first thousand years of what had been understood and the same scriptures that they had wrestled with that accomplished some of this tradition. And so this dualistic approach caused us to feel that any embrace of tradition is going to taint our position. I fear that if I referenced St. Bonaventure, I would wake up. One day, wearing a priest's collar and doling out Hail Marys. Not literally, but figuratively, I did. You see where the slippery slope argument prevents real growth. I would hear people argue about the Bible, and then churches would use phrases like Bible-believing, or we really believe the Bible. How many times have you talked to people about their church and like, oh, our church is so great. We're a real Bible-believing church. Churches that on their sign it says Bible believing. The part that's so interesting to me about that is are there churches that on their sign say not Bible believing? Like, why do you need to distinguish this? In fact, even if you ask the churches that maybe don't believe in the Bible the same way you do, are you Bible believing? Have you ever had somebody say no? It's interesting to me how this works. Because it's a classic move to distinguish yourself from a group that doesn't exist in the first place. It's like the argument of, do you support our troops? And some politicians right now, it's a very popular thing to say, well, I really support the troops. Let me just be clear. There's no viable politician in our country today that doesn't support the troops. But it, it, do, it builds a straw man argument if you say that you do, because it presupposes or creates the idea that there are others that don't. So you're creating an artificial enemy, in which case you will always win. When you create an enemy that's artificial, you're always going to win that argument. Because nobody's going to stand up and say, well, I don't support the troops. And nobody's going to say that, that um, well, you don't, because you're just saying you do. So it's an automatic win. And this is what the church has done by saying we're Bible-believing. We've created a schism that really isn't there in the first place, and we've created an artificial enemy. Let's all start with being honest, or we end up saying, in effect, we have a tradition of not believing tradition. We loved to say that we relied upon only the Bible, but this usually meant the way we read the Bible. How we read it and what we derive as sin changes every century or so. That's hard, but you would be remiss. You would be ignorant of history to think that even in this country, that the way we interpret sin from the Bible hasn't changed about every 25 years. Most of our operative images of God come primarily from our early experience of authority in family and in culture. I'm going to say that again. Most of your, let's make it personal. Most of your operative images of God come primarily from our early early experiences in family and culture. I was reading an article the other day. By a a pastor, Brian McLaren, and he was saying that this is why when you travel throughout the world, God, they view God differently depending on their culture. In America, God's a businessman. In Switzerland, God is a banker. In Germany, God's a policeman. Not literally, of course, but it's the way we view God through the lens of our culture. That happens, and that's why oftentimes you see, and we'll get into this in a little bit, but how it really does begin that we, from the way oftentimes the way we viewed our family and our culture is the image we view God. In this country, we're very justice oriented. We couldn't not be. We couldn't uh, um, not be justice oriented, and do things like we've done, where we try to liberate people that don't have a, a, a democratic society. You know, we've went into Iraq and Afghanistan and, and Syria and all these places to help people, World War II, I mean, my goodness. We're a justice-based society. We have a high value of that. Yet, isn't it interesting that most of the ways that we've been taught in this country to view God is as a judge? Why? Because that's our cultural lens for things. We're a justice-based society. And whether, in, whether justice-based society are those that stand on behalf of injustice or those – and that's why you get – it's it's amazing to me because that's what frustrates me about the argument when people get into about Black Lives Matter or Police Lives Matter. You realize that it's the same argument. It's a justice-based argument. It's just saying I want justice for the those who are minorities who are being oppressed, and I believe justice is – those that support and stand for law and order. It's all a justice argument. Just from different sides. And so it's really interesting to me how, even within those arguments, we come at it from a justice lens, because that's who we are. And we then, we actually then project that onto our image of God. Let me just say something really clear the Bible never, ever that I've been able to find. In the Bible, does God define himself as a judge? I'm not saying that we haven't seen him in that way, and I'm not saying people in the Bible didn't describe him in that way. But the one thing that we know that God is, is love. And here's the thing that's really, really important. It's not that God is a judge and that he's a loving judge. God is love in essence. And if God is love in essence, the word essence means love plus nothing else. He's love in essence. That means he's love plus nothing. So every other thing about God is going to be through the lens of love, not love being the lens of everything else. We've got it kind of backwards. We think that God is is judge, but he's a loving judge. So it's like the tempering of him as the one who potentially sends people to hell. It's backwards. In his essence, he's love. But these other things are true, too, about the character and nature of who he is. And so that's the challenge that we have. And most of our images about God are built culturally or family. We don't have time to get into the family element, but there is a family element. Oftentimes, people that had a very overbearing, especially a father or mother, uh, very overbearing, very um, um, stoic or uh, militant um, uh, parental system will view God that way. It's amazing to me when you get into into the, the psychology of it, how many people view God the way they viewed their parents interesting thing and we don't have time for it but that's just that way um then we find scriptures to validate that viewpoint if you want to see god as only judge you can find scriptures to do that if you want to see god as only loving you can find scriptures if you want to see god as only giving you can do that if you want to see god as the one who punishes you can find those scriptures. But in you, all you're doing is you're starting with your own viewpoint and then building a scriptural case around that. And before you think, I've jumped the shark, let me remind you that the Bible, if viewed alone, endorses slavery in both the Old and New Testaments. So the Bible alone
1: can be a scary tool.
0: Specifically alarming is that northern non-slave-owning Christians, northern non-slave-owning Christians, said that we shouldn't end slavery because the Bible endorses it. These people didn't own slaves. And yet 80 to 90 percent of northern Christians during the era, era of slavery opposed slavery because they felt like they couldn't
1: make a biblical case for it. The Bible alone can become a dangerous tool.
0: So does that make us less biblical today that now we don't have slavery? Because the Bible potentially endorses it. Does that or does that mean that our experience of God has evolved and caused us to understand him in a clearer way? If we try to use only scripture as our methodology, we will get stuck early on because many passages give very conflicting and even opposing images of God. I believe that Jesus only quoted those scriptures that he could validate by his own experience of who God was. At the same time, if we humans trust only our own experiences, we'll be trapped in subjective moods and personal references. But if we can verify that at least some of the holy people and Orthodox teachers that, uh, uh, that we build upon and then solid scripture, that foundation of what Scriptures that validates our experiences, we can become much more confident. Jesus and Paul clearly use and build upon their own Jewish scriptures and tradition. Yet they both courageously interpret them through the lens of their own unique personal experience of who God is. So both Jesus and Paul read the Bible through the lens of their experience in God, not the other way around. I recently read that the Bible is the best book in the world and the worst book in the world at the same time. It's the worst book when it's used for bullying and self-justification. It's the best book when it's used for the healing of the world and the transformation of ourselves. Obviously, God intended the latter. ability to read spiritual and transformative texts. I'm afraid we have for too long used the Bible merely to prove various church positions, which narrows its range and depth. Instead of transforming people, the Bible has become merely utilitarian and a handy ammunition to use against others. Serious reading of scripture will allow you to find ever new spiritual meaning for the liberation of history and your own soul. You discover that the text holds true on many levels, instead of trying to prove it's true on mere factual and historical levels. So, if we sit around all day and argue why one specific verse has to be the way we do everything, we're probably missing the depth of freedom, healing, and restoration that was intended for that text in the first place. Sacred texts will always maximize your possibility for life, love, and inclusion, which is precisely why we call them sacred in the first place. What makes this thing holy is not that it's my encyclopedia. What makes it holy is that it's life-giving in its essence. The early father's methodology to understand the journey of faith was viewed this way. Embracing experience, scripture, and and tradition. I say this again because it's very important. The way the early church fathers viewed the journey or view the lens of their perspective of God was threefold: experience, tradition, and scripture. Richard Rohr calls this the tricycle of methodology. Hence the title this morning. On this tricycle of faith, we find stability on Scripture, tradition, and experience. And if we leave off any of these three wheels, our interpretation of Scripture and reality will become unstable and biased according to our egocentric need at the moment. If I want to prove somebody's wrong, I don't care what it is they're doing, I can
1: find a Scripture to do it.
0: stand here today and say God is so good and God loves you there are people that can find scriptures that could speak contrary to that so if you stand alone in scripture it's like trying to ride a unicycle which I've never done however I don't feel like it would be a very stable way to get where I'm going so the way the early church fathers read the bible was not how we read the bible they didn't allow scripture to only interpret scripture the way the early church read the uh, fathers read the Bible was through experience, tradition, and biblical canon. Those three things. The interesting part is the approach used by the apostles as well as Jesus, which that's a whole other conversation, was that the front wheel of the tricycle is actually experience. The front wheel of this tricycle on the journey of faith is actually experience. Now, I know that's difficult to hear, but please hear me out. If we're honest with ourselves, experience is the wheel that we lead with anyway. Experience is already our front wheel. And I believe that this is the front wheel, whether you admit it or not. What I mean is that this is the front wheel, even if you believe the front wheel is Scripture. Because experience wins out anyway. Your experience or your perspective is the lens wherewith you view Scripture. So your experience is your front wheel, whether you admit it or not. It's already your front wheel. It's already the wheel that you steer with, that you lead with, that you turn with. And so what happens then is when we say it's Scripture, we just find the Scriptures that fit our lens, perspective, or experience and lead with that wheel anyway. But wouldn't it make more sense if God is a God that desires to be known, it says taste and see, that we allow the God that we know and the experience that he's always wanting to bring us into to be the thing that's out front, that we experience God and then we sit in stability on the two wheels of Scripture and tradition. But if you start with Scripture out front, your experience of who he is is always going to be limited to what you believe the scripture will allow. So we already missed the point. Often, our cultural, personal, and in many cases, family upbringing will dictate what we pay attention to in the scripture and often what we ignore. We operate with this bias, and in an amazing way, God still works with it. He takes us through the journey. But then we experience something new of him, if we'll allow it. And that experience opens a new door of discovery in how we see him and how we read the scriptures. So we were already doing this. If we allowed him to, what would happen is we would encounter God in a way that we hadn't encountered him or didn't know him to be. Then we would go back to the Bible and we'd say, oh, man, it was here all along, right? But the problem is, if we actually operate as strict biblical absolutists with the Bible out front, it's always going to be a regurgitation of what we were handed of the lens that the Bible has and therefore act as a ceiling or a limiting governor to our experience that he wants to take us into, which is the point. He never said... We've tasted and seen. We look back at the Bible and go, oh my gosh, he was good the whole time.
1: But we always lead with experience, whether we admit it or not.
0: The other two wheels, scripture and tradition, can be seen as sources of outer authority, while your personal experience is your inner authority. I'm convinced that you need and can have both. Both scripture and tradition help name and validate your inner experience. I'm going to say that again. Both scripture and tradition are used to validate your inner experience. Only when inner and outer authority come together do we truly have spiritual wisdom. Only when your experience partnered together with what those who have went before us believe, and scripture come together, do we have true wisdom? With this understanding, we can agree that Christianity, in most of its history, has relied on only outer authority or tradition and scripture. But we must now be honest about the third wheel of our inner experience, which of course was at work the whole time, but we just simply didn't acknowledge it. In fact, we were told to not trust it. You know how many times I was told to not trust my experience or what I thought God had done? Well, I, you don't see that in the scripture, so that can't be God. That was never how it was supposed to work in the first place. I would recommend that if you can't find something you're experiencing in him, if something in your journey is not found either through scripture or tradition that should give you pause and i think in humility we should take that before tradition and experience tradition and scripture and say god is this really something you're doing or not but i do think it's unfortunate and inaccurate to think that it should only be scripture because that flat viewing of the text only uses to separate us from people who think differently Thing that I'm saying to separate you in the in the extent that says well I have to have this now and not this I'm actually saying something that is far less dualistic than that what I'm saying is that we have lived in dualism which said if I valued experience that means I didn't have a high value of scripture or if I valued ex- uh, scripture then I didn't have a high value of experience what I'm saying is that as soon as you incorporate three dualism Dies. Theology is something that's supposed to be an alignment whereby what we experience in prayer and meditation with life has aligned itself to the balance and the platform that we sit on of tradition and scripture. It should be a great comfort to us to realize when people ask us, hey, don't you think you've gotten off base? I've had people ask me that. Hey, don't you think you've gone too far? Haven't you gotten off base that we can look at tradition and scripture and find the experience we're having? I'll give you an example. If I were to say to you that we are engaging in a flow of the creative spirit of God where we are finding the move or uh, um, excuse me, where we are finding the move of the spirit in creation and nature, and all of the earth is, is we're coming into awareness of the work of, the, of creation and the move of the Spirit in all of the earth, some of you might assume that I'm now a California progressive snowflake. However, I just quoted to you some of the writings of the spiritual fathers in AD 50. You see, sometimes what happens is, we only find what we're currently hearing to be the measuring stick. So I could stand, stand here and say that we are we're aligning ourselves to a flow where all of creation is, is singing and bringing forth his praise. And where the trees are clapping their hands. And where the rocks are crying out. And where the, the ground is birthing forth his presence. And now it just sounds like I've mentioned some new agey thing but this is what the early church apostles were saying. So it always becomes relative to what we've known. Finally, I want to reiterate that we're actually contributing to the shared community of restoration, healing, and yes, enlightenment that's been happening since the beginning of humanity. Each era and culture is discovering truth through its own lens, vocabulary, and symbols. Each Culture is uncovering and discovering truth through its own lens, vocabulary, and symbols. Consciousness is never meant to be a mere personal possession, but as the Latin root conscience indicates, it was first and foremost a shared experience. The meaning of the word "conscious" uh, consciousness in Latin means to know alongside or to know with. So we're stepping into a knowing that's greater than us, is the point. And in that experience, we find who he really is. My my private truth is never big enough to be helpful. What I've noticed is that most people that have a stance that would be considered extremely fundamentalist and are rigid in their approach come from a broken environment. This is really, really important. Most people that I've encountered who are absolutely rigid in their stance about what they believe and that it's got to be this way, come from some type of broken or challenged environment. Many of these people come from a shattered, broken, and often violent upbringing. This causes them to demand for a view that is absolute when they actually do find something stable. They demand that this is objective truth. It's absolute truth, when in fact, in most cases, it's not objective, it's subjective. My family and my tribe, this would be what they might say, my family and my tribe would shattered. So I need to have very concrete borders and absolutes about who is in and who is out. Why? Because who's in and who's out was something that was, I was always grappling with growing up. My tribe was, my family, there was, there was divorce, there was discord, there was challenge, there was this, there was that. And so I need to have absolutes in order to feel confident and secure. So interestingly enough, one of the things he's been helping me with is to have a better appreciation for those that don't get it. Because they've got a story too. They didn't get there on their own. Most people are not fundamentalist, absolutist, uh, rigid, because they just woke up one day and thought it was a good idea. They're more than likely that way because that's the only um, stability they've ever had. And they don't know any different. This is why it's so important to remain connected. I'll close here in just an hour or so. This is why it's so important to remain connected connected to the father and connected to each other most of our formation whether a group or a culture is based upon a common knowing and primarily an awareness of what we're against let's say that again most of our formation in our society whether a group or a culture is based upon a common knowing and primarily a stance of what we're against So many times in humanity, we have gathered not because of what we are for, but we rally behind what we're against. This is called scapegoating. And while we don't have time to get into that today, principally, that means that rather than deal with our individual issues, we gather based on what we can see and agree is a threat to our way of life. So we gather together based on our agreement. That those people are wrong. Not that we have something that's life-giving. That they're a threat to what we know. We find this today. And to be honest, that is what killed Jesus. That is what killed Jesus. He became the scapegoat to show us the depravity of that process. There are studies that prove... It is so much harder to gather a group based on positive motivation or a common love rather than a bond of fear. This is why people rally together in the vitriol of anger and frustration, and you hear things like, um, well, our enemy is the media, our enemy is the East Coast and the West Coast, our enemy is the Midwest. Our enemy is this other political party. Our enemy is the immigrants and the refugees. Our enemy is the, the fundamentalists and the conservatives. We, the, they rally together. We do this in our culture consistently. We rally together. Even as, even as charismatics or Pentecostals, we rallied together. It was more of based on what we have that others don't have and why they're wrong because they don't have it. And as if maybe – do you realize – that when we were studying, when I was brought up and studying church culture, I put Catholics in the same category as atheists. My job was to convert them. And if I'm really honest, if we really, really, really drilled down, most of us or a lot of us put uh, Presbyterians and put Episcopals and put Lutherans in those categories, put Baptists in that category. Baptist why because I had to affirm what I know and the easiest way to rally a group is to hold to what we know by establishing what
1: we're against
0: so we must stay connected We must be able to surrender ourselves to one another and to God to really deal with our stuff. The reality is that you were not designed to bear the weight of this journey alone. According to the Gospels, Jesus said the goal is to remain connected. John 15 gives that wonderful teaching where we have been told the goal is not to remain connected, but to remain correct. that the goal is to be correct. This is why the most common reaction to any challenge of our righteousness is to withdraw. As soon as a challenge to my being correct is presented, the most common scapegoating method is to withdraw, and now I try to find a new allegiance with a group that agrees with my correctness. In most cases, I'm also drawing that correctness to a common agreement of their wrongness. So I leave this group because my correctness was challenged. I find another group who we all agree on what correctness is. But more commonly what we agree upon is that that group doesn't have correctness. Because we've left it. And so we withdraw. In reality, that strikes at the very core of what we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be connected. Not
1: correct. Connected.
0: This is the body of Christ. The Bible says that the whole body of Christ only can bear the weight of of his glory and what that's called to accomplish. I am convinced that this is the point. This is what he's drawing us to. This is the goal of even prayer. And one of the things that I love about the idea of prayer is that it's an invitation to know. It's an invitation to experience. It's an invitation to be free. It's an invitation to encounter. And I love the fact that that the, the 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 way that God established that we would commune with him was in prayer, because in prayer, I'm not flipping through a script about how it's supposed to happen. I'm just saying, crash into my borders. Come in the room. And that yieldedness, that surrender is the thing that says, I I I, I don't think we can it what we think when we say things like, well, that, God isn't, that person has a different belief, so they're not really encountering God. You think that you're limiting their religion when you're actually limiting him. And so I believe wholeheartedly that there are people of every religion possible who are gathering today who are encountering God, not because their religion is the correct vehicle, but because God doesn't need a vehicle in the first place. He doesn't require that. Lastly, let's look at Romans 8. Close with this passage. It's one of my favorite passages. I could almost use this every single week for something. Romans eight nineteen, and this is the Passion Translation. The entire universe is standing on tiptoe. Yearning to see the unveiling of God's glorious sons and daughters. For against its will, the universe itself has had to endure the empty futility resulting from the consequences of sin. But now, with eager expectation, all creation, all creation, all creation, all creation, all creation. creation. I'm just going to read into that for a moment. Now, with earnest expectation, Muslims, Buddhists, Atheists, Baptists, Christians, trees, rocks, water, clouds, flowers. expectation all creation longs for freedom from its slavery to decay and to experience with us the wonderful freedom of the awareness of being God's children it's not that we've become his children it's that we were his children all
1: along I didn't wait I
0: didn't become a child of God when I accepted Jesus I become a I became aware of that I was his child all along. So, to this day, we are aware of the universal agony and groaning of creation as if it were the, the contradictions of labor for childbirth, or contractions, excuse me, not contradictions, contractions of labor for childbirth. And it's not just creation. We have already experienced the first fruits of the Spirit also inwardly groan as we passionately long to experience Our full status as God's sons and daughters, including our physical bodies being transformed, for this is the hope of salvation. I'd like to end with this really interesting thing that God told me like 50 times yesterday. He just kept saying it over and over again. Free people, free people.
1: Free people, free
0: people. That is the point. What this scripture is talking about is we then it's not as if all of a sudden we get all these things right. The stars align and now we're a son of God. Now we're a daughter of God. Now we're now we're in. And so now all of a sudden God can begin to work. Guess what? That is arrogance beyond arrogance. He was already working. I just got in the flow. I just aligned. what he was doing all along and in the midst of that what this passage says is i become free not that i was um not that i became free because all of a sudden now i don't have issues anymore and now i don't have sin anymore because how many times have you been taught i actually had somebody tell me one time that um they they were asking if i ever lose my temper and i said yes of course and they said well then you're not saved that's the old man, and if you really got saved, the old man dies as soon as you get saved. And we all have been taught some version of that—that that as soon as, I mean, uh, if we were the way we were taught, the best thing we could do as soon as somebody prayed the salvation prayer was to kill them, because that was the best chance they had of going to heaven. Like that's the cleanest they would ever get. So, like, they just prayed the prayer, they're holy, end them right now, and that's the most compassionate thing we could do as a church. And that's not it. That's not the point. The whole point has been from that point. All you have done is you have engaged yourself in the flow of freedom that you were already free to if you just stepped into it. So freedom then becomes our lifestyle, free from the bond of slavery, free into resurrection, free into life and free people, free people. That's what we get to do. And I'm I'm sorry to tell you, but I don't know that I can quote a single time that I've ever brought somebody into freedom using the Bible alone. You know what brings people into freedom? Your freedom. You can quote scripture until you're blue in the face, but it's not if it's not freeing, if it's not life giving to you, it's just words on a page. The thing that makes scripture powerful is the life that is exchanged in it if we allow it to. And so I don't think I've ever, 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 ever seen anybody that I've just, you know, been sharing the deep things of God with and just quoted a bunch of scripture to them. And they went, oh, I just wish you would have told me. No, when you share with them what freedom looks like, then they go, oh. I didn't know that
1: was available. That's the beauty of it.
0: That's where Paul said, if you believe in tricycle journey that we're on and and i don't know that i totally understand this in fact it's difficult i've spent several 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 hours studying books about how the early church fathers read the scriptures and trying to really understand but one thing i can tell you for sure it was not a weaponized gospel it was not a flat text it was not an absolute it was always something that we were saying In this journey, we just get to experience him. Those things, both tradition and scripture, begin to be our foundation that keeps us stable and secure. So, Father, we thank you for this. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the word that you speak to our hearts as well as the word that you gave to us in biblical canon. We thank you for those who have went before us, those that have given their lives to, to laboring over the same passages that we have. Part of the beauty of what connects us is that I'm connected to the same scriptures that somebody 2,000 years ago was trying to understand. I'm trying to grapple with the same passages that Paul tried to grapple with in the Old Testament. Father, that's part of what connects us. Help us to have a real value for that. But also help us to understand that because of some of the things that have been attained, I don't have of who you are in the life-giving reality of the God that is all and in all. And that within that I don't have to question your goodness based on some verses that somebody has told me, but I can find the verses that showcase that you're good because I've already known that to be the case. That I allow the scripture to Continue to reinforce the you that I'm finding and knowing and that within that, I move from construction to deconstruction to the reconstruction of the God who is the God who is good, the God who is faithful to all, the God who is loving to all, the God who is good to all. We thank you. And we love you. In Jesus name we pray. Amen. All right. God bless everybody. Have a great rest of your Thank you for listening to this message from Harvest House Church. For more information, find us online at harvesthouse.blog.